Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. Well, Mark, it's been an interesting time for the last half an hour or so. It is the weekend in February the 9th, 2018, and we have just spent half an hour trying to record a podcast where we couldn't hear each other for half the time. And I've saved that recording, Mark, and I think we'll have to have a a bloopers episode at some some stage soon when we can put that on because some of the foul things that came out of your mouth when you thought I wasn't listening was um was um was gold it was gold mark um so let's start again with this recording and um yeah i think we'll just um cut to the chase a little bit more in this this one because um um we did tend well, we to don't want um, it to break again <laughs> We don't want it to break, and we um we're rubbing it on a little bit. But anyway, it's um it's um for for um regular um subscribers. Um, I may sound a little bit different because I'm recording in one of my daughter's um bedrooms here because there's a big um, party going on next door, and all the doof doof music is happening. I have the window open a little bit because it is very hot and humid here. So, um, if you hear a bit of um a rave going on it's it's not me just um jumping up and down here markets it's, it's the people next door and i've got a couple of cold drinks here to help me along the way and hopefully our little um voip recording will um will um be stable it's never failed as yet but i am in a, a different um area of the house and i'm just on the wi-fi this time instead of on the the wide connection so how's your week been mark my week has been, I was saying before, just it's been a really good week. I've had a, um, a, a excellent week, but um, I was noting that there's been an increase. We've had an increase in the um, number of out-of-hours calls we're doing. Um, we were we don't do all that many. We take advantage of the wonderful uh, our wonderful colleagues at the Animal Referral and Emergency Centre here in Newcastle. But there are certain clients, certain cases um, uh, that we sort of um, know the history and we're, we're keen to follow through with those clients. And so um, we do have a subset that we continue to see and uh, and there's just been a little spike in those. I don't know that I can attribute that to anything in particular, but it, but it has generated a couple of interesting cases. One in particular I was talking to you previously about was the uh, Breedles python, a, a lovely four-kilo female who is heavily gravid, but in... In her urgency to uh, pass her eggs, she's managed to pass a large part of her oviduct with the uh, uh, the eggs, and um, and that uh, nearly a meter of oviduct in um, wow. managed managed to get twirled around it, it, it itself and twisted up with some of the sphagnum moss that's in the bottom of the uh, egg chamber, the egg-laying chamber that the breeder provides. Um, and, yeah, she was in she was in a bit of distress. Um, and those, those snakes are always a worry because they, you know, they, they, um, they just seem to – they're very hard to stop doing more damage while they're conscious and getting them anaesthetised and – uh, getting the dead tissue away and um, and getting them stable is uh, is a bit of an exercise. So that's kept me busy for most of today, Brendan. Yes, sounds like um, 
some exciting surgery um, coming up for that one after the initial stabilisation. Yeah. And for listeners who um, haven't been following or subscribed, um, our last podcast was on um, basic reptile surgery. So go back and listen to that one um, and you'll get some tips and tricks about um, how Mark went about his business today to sort out that little snakey. Um, I think we should jump into... um, what have we got? I think we've only got three news items um, this week, Mark, so I might take the first one. And um, I must admit I spent 10 minutes talking to myself about this one and um, um, I was going a bit, little bit crazy when our um, little connection there wasn't working. But the first um, news item is um, – oh, I've pulled up the wrong one there, Mark. <laughs> I've found it. Yep, sorry. I had the other two – up, ready to go, but not the one that um, I've already read um, through in great detail. And that is a new cute and cuddly creature that's been discovered, and this is a big-eyed, fluffy-tailed lemur species discovered, reported um, January the 12th, 2008. And um, scientists have recently identified and named the new species Groves Dwarf Lemur in Madagascar. And um, in um, it lives high up in the canopies where they shelter inside trees and feed upon flowers and nectars. Um, and scientists are still learning about the lemur's social structure, but they have been observed in groups and wandering as individuals. Um, but they're not very big. You know, people think lemurs are a decent size, and, and most lemurs are a fairly small um, mammal. And this particular species that's recently been um, identified is on average only six inches long and has a tail measuring about 10 inches making it smaller than a typical North American squirrel. Um, I'm just trying to scroll down a little bit here, and there's a couple of points on this article that I liked um, um, about it. Well, not at all that I found interesting. Um, currently 24 lemur species, um, because lemurs are considered the most threatened mammal group in the world. Um, and 24 lemur species are listed as critically endangered, 49 endangered and 20 vulnerable and nearly all of them can be found on Madagascar. Um, Mark, that um, iced iced um, water is starting to have effect on me, I think, at the moment. The Groves Dwarf has not yet been given a conservation status, but because it is concentrated in two national parks, um, it will likely be labelled as threatened, um, a step above the animal's less fortunate cousin. So, yeah, another cute and cuddly, but um, I love the look of lemurs. I've, I haven't had the fortune of being able to... Um, deal with them or treat them um in um when i was working as a zoo vet but um they're pretty they're pretty sneaky little fast things aren't they they're pretty hard to catch um and when they were talking about trying to um trying to catch these lemurs i found it quite interesting so remember that they are only six six inches long um, and they captured the animals using remote darting or by hand. If they were darted, they deployed spring-loaded nets to catch the lemurs before they fell to the ground. Gee, I tell you what, you need to be good at your darting, Mark, if you're darting. I was was thinking exactly the same thing as you were saying, um, uh, as you were reading from the article. I was noting that um, there's a high degree of coordination if they're darting them remotely um, and then deploying spring-loaded nets to catch them before they hit the ground—that's uh, that's high-tech animal capture. It's um, and 
yeah, I don't think there'd be much room for error with an animal that size and, and Dartin. I mean, I have done a bit of um, animal sedation using Dartin um, in the past um, and no doubt I'll probably do some in the future as well, but it's mainly been much bigger animals like kangaroos um, in, in wildlife parks when we're relocating or doing um, um, population control studies on them um, and they're a hell of a lot easier um, and bigger um, to do that but uh, I don't think I'd I'd be good enough to dart a six-inch um, lemur from afar and not uh, manage to um, accidentally dart it in the eye or something like that. So, um, yeah, better better than, than me, Mark. Um, the next news story is your one and, and oh, no, it's another, uh, just another bird one. Um, yeah, surprisingly enough, it is. <laughs> um, this one, this one caught my eye in particular, and interestingly enough, um, I have a little review later on, and um, and this uh, this particular article from the Greenwich Times ties in very neatly with that uh, book review. Um, but the article by Jennifer Turiano talks about a local Facebook birding group banning our photos. So, uh, what one of the things that um, is really a little bit of a, a uh, particularly in North America, um, it, it uh, has become quite a common thing for photographers to maybe um, set uh, their camera up and then uh, place a deceased prey item somewhere to um, draw ours in so they can get particular photographs of them or maybe they'll stalk out a nest and um, and uh, and photograph the owls coming in or even uh, identify the animals as they are roosting in the day and take photographs of them in their day roosts. Now, all these behaviours that photographers might do are particularly dangerous for the owls. They markedly decrease the, you know, if an owl becomes dependent on a supplied food source, it may not necessarily be as good an efficient hunter. They... Um, they, uh, particularly the owls that are roosting in the day, if they're disturbed, they obviously, like I am when I'm disturbed at night, they don't function quite as well the next uh, period of hunting they've got to do. Um, so I think there is a, a fairly um, decent argument to be made that um, avenues where, um, where birding ethics are drawn into question to generate the photograph, that those photographs that are, that result, it may be a good thing not to give them a, 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 a um, you know, a forum, a platform um, that encourages uh, further people to um, go and take photographs. So, so I was quite interested that, um, you know, I don't necessarily associate Facebook pages with a lot of uh, um, necessarily high standard ethics, but um, in this instance. Um, I'm, I'm really proud that that birding group has taken a stance which um, which uh, is likely to improve a lot of the owls in their area. Do you see that sort of um, situation happening in other areas of the world, fairly unique sort of thing that's tending to happen mainly in the United States and associated areas? No, I think it would. Uh, I'd, um, there's an interesting species of owl in Australia, the grass owl, um, uh, who do, which does occur on our local uh, Hexham swamp um, and, um, and can be uh, called in, will come in to investigate calls. But obviously if you do that around the time that the birds are breeding, um, then they're 
you know, more agitated. They spend less time attentive to the eggs or young and you can compromise their breeding success. And so there are there are some people who have been known to maybe overdo the, the effort at particularly the wrong time of year with our local grass owls. And, um, and I, 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 no, I don't think it is just a, a, a purely North American problem. I think worldwide the... Um, yes. The upsurge in the number of yes. people um, who do like to take photographs of birds. Okay, so we're back again here, Mark. Gee, we've had some fun with this um, recording here. So I'm spending, I'll be spending a bit of time in post-production cutting and pasting all these little um, segments. So um, we lost each other there for a bit again um, and we had a big thunder clap here and our internet went down at home, Mark, so that's what happened. So my apologies for that. So um, I think we'll jump on to the next and final news story. And this one I... I I couldn't quite get my head around this one, Mark, so you might need to um, butt in and um, mention, um, put a few comments in here as well. And the, the title of it um, by the author is Karen Kaplan, is Elephants, Lions and Other Wild Animals Are Exquisitely Sensitive to the Effects of War, which I think a lot of you would be saying, dull, you know, um, it's pretty pretty damn obvious there. there. But further down this article was a um, it was an interesting study. Um, they the researchers analysed sixty five years of armed conflicts in Africa and found that exposure to just one year of war within a twenty year period was enough to destabilise populations in the wild. Of its human death toll was sufficient to diminish wildlife populations according to the study published in Nature. You know, nature's a pretty respected um, journal. Um, even low-grade infrequent conflict is sufficient to drop population below replacement. Considering the war is bad for people, it may seem obvious that it's bad for animals. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I was just going to say that um, there, there is the obvious, you know, the obvious fact that in a destabilised zone that, um, you know, uh, hungry soldiers will go hunting for bushmeat. Uh, poachers um, will finance military excursions uh, by hunting desirable species and, and, you know, having tusks or rhino horns sent uh, to the various markets that will pay well for them. But it is a little bit difficult to understand why, like I struggle to understand why that's magnified so dramatically by conflict. I would have thought that a lot of those things uh, would happen um, as a result of uh, poverty, uh, that um, in circumstances when people were very poor, uh, that those things might happen. I don't, like, I, I just don't intuitively see why conflict on its own becomes a um, such a powerful um, factor that changes the trajectory of the populations, and I don't. Um, I've I've read through this um, uh, summary of the article several times, and um, and I can't. I can see that that they record the effect, but um, I don't know that I understand the the logic. Well, well, I think in the middle of the article there, that the couple of comments I have is conflict frequently consistently predicted wildlife decline, the researchers wrote. Other things did not. For instance, the size of the protected areas did, didn't did seem to have any bearing on the populations of the animals living in them, nor did the intensity of the conflict going on around them. 
These and other findings led the researcher to hypothesise that military activity per se isn't the problem for animals. Rather, it's the effect of socio-economic upheaval and livelihood disruption associated conflict, which is exactly what you were um, mentioning there about potential with it, you know, related to potentially poverty and, and looking for meat, etc. And they also noted a potential silver lining. Although a small amount of war exposure had a measurable effect on wild animals, the size of that effect was less severe than previous research would have led them to expect. Um, well, the um, the answer is pretty obvious, Mark, isn't it? Make love, not war, I think, um, for that particular um, article. That would be my summary for that. I don't think I get in Nature um, Journal um, with a comment like that. But um. Have a review, a, a, a book review, and it feeds back into the discussion I was having before about um, about our, uh, our owls. The book in question um, is Owls, Frogmouths and Nightjars of Australia. It's written by Dr. David Holland. David is a, uh, a retired doctor. He was born in England and came to Australia. I think he came over, I don't know, in the 1930s or 40s. Um, and uh, he's been photographing owls and uh, nocturnal birds uh, ever since with a passion. And this book is a stunning example of uh, excellent uh, um, you know, ecological information, excellent uh, uh, information about these animals in the wild, and it's just punctuated with the most beautiful photographs, pages upon pages of glorious images of all the the, um, the owls and nightjars uh, that occur in Australia. Um, so I, as you could imagine, Brendan, I... Uh, find this an exceedingly pleasurable book to look at and it has the uh, benefit of course of um of meaning that i don't have to go out and disturb the owls at night and photograph them myself i can um i can you know i won't be ever, ever able to take photographs like these but um that one of the interesting sidelines i wanted to mention was that uh, Dr. Hollands was presenting at a um, photography workshop here in The Hunter a couple of years ago. And, of course, given that I would give his book a, uh, uh, you know, an 8 out of 10, I went along to listen to his presentation. And, um, and he'd worked closely with uh, uh, John Young, a naturalist who's famous for being the one who discovered the night parrot. John's acted as... Uh, David's guide to find these owls over many years, um, and in of particular interest was the way that that David had obtained lots of these photographs, and particularly some of the most spectacular ones involved infrared beams triggering cameras high in the trees close to nests. Which look, I I now have. Um, where I was giving this book eight out of ten, I, it's now give I have misgivings, and it, and while I understand that um, a lot of these photos were taken before uh, the ethics of this sort of stuff came into question, um, I I, um, I think it uh, I think it's important to note that um, it's not something that we should continue to do, which makes this book uh, probably a little bit of a one-off, and um, the, the opportunity to get these. 
types of photographs I think will not occur in the future. So uh, hopefully that um, the fact that it's been done once will mean that it doesn't need to be done again um, and uh, this book can be enjoyed and uh, ensure the people that do enjoy and want to learn about these animals uh, get the opportunity without necessarily disturbing them in the so evening. are you changing your uh, score of 8 out of 10 or it stays at 8 out of 10 for... I think I'm staying on. I'm not done changing my score. Once I give a score, that's it. No, 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 no second guessing. So that's Owls, Frogmouths, and Nightjars of Australia by David Hollands. It's not um, a particularly expensive book. You can currently purchase it for just over $34 Australian at Book Depository. I'm sure you'll be able to get it at um, Amazon.com and other. Other good bookstores, Mark. Yeah, good one. It's another one I need to, um, well, next time I'm up your way, I'll have a flick through it, I think. Yeah. So what have we got for our main topic this week? Well, I think we, it'll be the first of many on this particular topic, and that is um, zoonoses. So diseases um, transmissible from animals to humans. And I think what we're going to do this episode is talk about two of these specific um, diseases, and um, that is chlamydia. And we'll specifically talk about um, in um, birds transmissible to humans, and we'll also talk about salmonella and salmonellosis with regard to being transmitted from reptiles to humans. So, Mark, maybe if you kick it off with the avian aspect and then um, we'll talk a little bit about the reptile transmission of salmonella afterwards. I reckon that's a great plan, Brendan. And, and it's, I, rec- I was just going to comment before we get specifically into our uh, topics with that um, – I think zoonoses are a much more important part of veterinary practice for those uh, practitioners of exotic and avian medicine. I think it certainly are zoonotic issues that um, small animal practitioners have to be aware of. Q fever probably highest amongst those, and we'll talk about that in another episode. But I think for us in um, unusual and avian practice, these diseases are almost like a daily issue that we have to deal with um, and they play a role in the practice in terms of work, workplace health and safety um, they play a role in uh, client education um, and uh, and so I think it is really important that we uh, devote several of our episodes to discussing them and psittacosis is uh, is probably um, one of the literally I, I would I would I in preparing for this little presentation, I made a bit of an estimate about the number of times we've had uh, birds that are, um, that have psittacosis in hospital. And I reckon that over the last 20-odd uh, years that the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital has been open, um, that we've probably had psittacosis uh, birds in hospital 18 of those years there would be well over 90% of the time that um, that we have a bird that uh, has psittacosis in the hospital. And um, interestingly enough, uh, even though it is a zoonosis and even though the birds are present in the hospital, um, there, there have been only uh, two times that we've had staff members who have uh, had issues with chlamydia, chlamydia psittaci, and, um, and interestingly enough, when those cases were worked up, both of those cases, the, 
our our staff member actually acquired the infection from birds that were not in our hospital at the time. Um, one had uh, taken a bird in to be rescued and, and had it at their home, um, and the other one uh, likely picked it up in a um, in a zoo. Um, so. So it's not an easy disease to catch, but it's really, really important. And it's really important because it's not high on the list of things that doctors recognise. So uh, people who have birds and people who work with the health of birds um, that are owned by other people need to be aware that uh, human physicians will not automatically be aware that this is a disease they need to have uppermost in their mind. So I... Uh, regularly make the point to um, our clients who own birds that if they have those clinical signs that um, that are suggestive of uh, uh, chlamydia cytosci in people, psittacosis in humans, then they need to mention it to their doctor. Those signs include, um, you know, the things that you would associate with a bad cold, a respiratory compromise, cough, uh, tightness in the chest, um, uh, pain in the muscles and joints, headaches, um, and uh, uh, lethargy and depression. The interesting thing is that many people will have these signs and they'll go to the doctor and they'll, um, you know, be, be told that they've got, uh, you know, just a particularly bad case of the flu or whatever and um, be prescribed uh paracetamol or ibuprofen and um, told to take it easy for a week and and they're unlikely to get better. Most people are not going to kick this with their own immunity unless they have the advantage of very specific antibiotics. Um, So mentioning it to their doctor that they have had um, access, they've, they've been exposed to birds and particularly where we get a bird diagnosed with this disease, um, then I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that we let the people know that they have to let their doctor know um, that they may have this problem if they present with uh, the signs of a very bad cold. Yes. I I think a good colleague of our, Mike Mike, um, Cannon, has a great story about what he recommends, um, his summary of testing for um, psittacosis and and warning to clients. Um, and can you remember what he used to say there, Mark? No, I can't. What did he say? I think he used to, his joke was, although it was only partially a joke, was if um, he would give a handout to clients um, where their, their bird has been diagnosed with chlamydia infections and um, warning the clients that, yeah, look out for any signs of, of, of this or the symptoms or the signs that you mentioned just previously. And if you see any of them, go and see your GP. Um, but if when you get to your GP and you give them um, a, a little handout or, or mention chlamydia, if he puts you up in the in the stirrups and st- starts take it, taking a swab from your nether regions, then he's thinking about the, the wrong type of chlamydia um, because it's a risk. <laughs> that, that is so, so my Yes, and um, I always remember that, and I think that was probably 20, 20 25 years ago when I first heard, heard that story from Mike, but I think it's... Um, He'll, he'll, he'll still be telling it. He'll still be telling it. <laughs> he will, yes. So, yeah, I, I think it's um, – so what do you tell your clients? Do you mention that to all your all your clients with, with birds that may be carrying this particular organism? Is it a standard sort of handout you give them or not? 
It definitely, we tend not to, there's handout we reserve for the clients who have birds who uh, test positive on one of the tests. Um, for, uh, let's say we just have a, uh, um, a routine bird consult. At one of the times that we see them, we will put a note in the, you know, in our invoice, there's a space for us to make a little comment and, um, and we will make a comment in there after discussing it with the clients. There have been, interestingly enough, there have been three times when we've had clients return to us and thank us for pointing it out that, um, that they are, uh, that they did it, in fact, um, mention it to their doctor. They were tested, they were found to be positive, they were treated and they got better. It's a very useful education and knowledge is a very powerful thing, I think. Yes, I think that leads on the next big thing we should um, have a podcast on is the testing. I think that's exactly right. I'd love to talk about that at length, but maybe today's another not Another podcast and perhaps... Um, that, that may be a um, time when we could get our good friend Alex on to chat about um, testing protocols um, for that sort of thing, although he may, may still be talking around in circles after about two hours, I think, um, because it's such an interesting topic. <laughs> Shout out to Alex there. Um, okay, so let's let's jump on to our next topic. Apologies again. Um, I'm not quite sure how this episode is going to fit together once I cut and paste all the, all the separate recordings we've done for this one, Mark. But our next one is... Um, yeah, reptiles and salmonellosis. Um, and well, this, this is similar in that, um, I, I'm constantly all our new reptile client are given a little handout on um, zoonoses in, in reptiles and in particular it does certainly mention salmonella. Gee, I, I just cringe because I get so many clients that to bring in their reptiles into us um, for various procedures or even just I wander out into the waiting room to call in the next client and there they are um, sitting there kissing their snake or kissing their um bit of dragon and I just shake my head and then give them the handout. So for those of you not familiar with salmonella and, and reptiles, reptiles carry salmonella but not necessarily in their gut and potentially on their, on their, on their skin as well. But not all of those um, types or, um, are particularly um, zoonotic with them. So I, I forget it was hundreds, isn't it, I think, um, um, of, of types of salmonella species that have been reported um, in, in reptiles. Even now, although they changed the regulations in America regarding the care and keeping of small turtles, um, specifically to stop young children putting little turtles into their mouths, which is what young children tend to do they like to put things in their mouth so um, until they change the regulations overseas in the US um, regarding that they were getting thousands I think of young children getting clinical salmonellosis from putting a whole turtle inside their mouth but in the last couple of years reading from the data from the CDC um, from America 2015 and 2016 more than 202 people were, were um, became sick from salmonella outbreaks linked to small turtles and 41% of the patients were children younger than five years of age. Um, some people in these outbreaks became sick even when they did not touch their turtles but had turtles in their household, so um, presumably trans transmitted by other other people in the household touching the turtles and then leaving the, the salmonella on, on fomites and, and door handles and things like that. And over a broader range of period, um, 2006 to 2014, 
the CDC investigated 15 multi-state salmonella outbreaks linked to turtles. 921 people were sickened, 156 were hospitalised, and one infant died um, with it. Um, there's also been outbreaks of linked to um, frogs as well, and amph- uh, so amphibians, not just the reptiles. So I think the bottom line is with the salmonella and reptiles is that people always link salmonella infections to the obvious one and certainly um, by many factors of, of, of hundreds probably people are more likely to catch salmonella infection by um, poorly poorly handled or cooked food rather than reptiles but we can still get it from reptiles and and it's really um, if you look for the association of reptile and amphibian veterinarians um, they have a policy where they don't recommend any child younger than five or anybody with a poor immune system to have a reptile as a pet for instance aids patients etc or the elderly um, shouldn't be keeping them as a pet which the interesting thing there is and i'd like your opinion on this mark we we not infrequently have um, places like kindergartens, so preschool associations where they have a pet turtle in a preschool situation and they bring that turtle in for a health check and we send the school teacher home saying, hey, it's probably a good idea not to have a turtle or a reptile as a pet in a preschool because you're just asking for trouble if, if one of these children becomes sick and a parent decides to sue you. I don't think they've got a leak to stand on um, regarding it. Do you, have you had similar situations um, with, with dealing with... Pre- Precise. Precisely the same circumstances. Turtles do, you know, they obviously a favourite of young children and, um, and they're often... Uh, um, lovely interactive animals that respond to people being around, um, but but there is no doubt that they represent a serious uh, danger in a childcare uh, facility setting, and um, and yeah, we we do try to discourage um, the people that have them um, from uh, maintaining them in that circumstance. Uh, it, it, it would be difficult. And the other thing, just as a side to that, is that. Um, we often have those people ask us to, can't we treat their turtle to eradicate the salmonella from their their um, digestive system? And um, and the, the well, the short answer is no, we can't treat them for that. And if we do treat them, we're only likely to select more and more resistant strains. And um, and the organism's not causing any disease process in the turtle. I take on board your comments precisely that we should uh, proactively discourage childcare centres from having these animals as pets. Maybe any animals as pets. (laughs) Yeah. But but particularly these ones. The other thing that makes me cringe is, and and, um, I have to be careful whenever I say this to clients, is um, it's not not unusual for me to recommend to a client that they give their um, reptile a bath the client will then come back and say, oh, I just gave him a bath. And when they give their reptile a bath, they give it a bath in or a soak. Um, they give it the bath or the soak in the, in the um, bath that humans are bathing in and no reptile should be should be bathed in something like that so i usually recommend that they have they have a separate little plastic tub that they um give their reptile or the snake a bath in if we need to do that um you know potentially even and sometimes i do recommend this still which i shouldn't um even a laundry trough um 
um, can be can be just as bad, I think. But um, yeah, I've lost count of how many clients will say, "Oh yeah, I've, I let my snake have a bit of a swim around in our bath," and then they go and take a bath um, um, the same day um, in the in, and they're just asking for trouble with that. Yeah, so I think yeah, we we tend to get a bit blasé um, about the potential zoonoses that um, may be happening, and especially for those of us who deal with the unusual pets all the time. So um, that's it's good to have all these handouts and. And certainly um, the the associations that um, you and I are closely associated with and and, and members of, um, associations like the Unusual Pet Veterinarians, the UPAV group within the Australian Vet Association, um, the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians, and also the Association of Exotic Mammal Veterinarians and and the various avian um, veterinary um, associations are, are, are always worthwhile joining if if you um, have an interest in those species because most, if not all, of those organisations have um, developed great little handouts um, for clients on these types of things, um, specific zoonoses etc um yeah so um i mean yeah i think as part of our what will be likely an, an ongoing zoonosis series um i think at some stage we'll talk about what if any effects um these particular organisms have on the on the host organism um not the, um so the animal not the human and and whether or not we can eradicate them so we've got plenty to talk about as far as zoonosis go and there's a long list isn't there mark of um zoonotic disease we'll have to get to and yeah we've got lots of um podcasts to do in the future haven't we so i don't think we'll ever have any lack of topics um for our for our podcasts yeah so i I think we could talk about anything brendan i think we would um that we could probably start a podcast without any topics (laughs) and still manage to pump I'm out full of hot air, I think, Mark. Yeah, that's, that's what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we better um, call it a day for this podcast. So um, thank you again to all our um, listeners and even more to our subscribers. And we have had a bit of an increase in subscribers lately. So keep keep recommending us to your, to your veterinary college and your veterinary technician nurse um, friends as well. And all those vet students out there, hello to you. And um, we'll... Um, We'll no doubt um, hear you from you next time, and it's time to say goodbye because the intro guy's got on is is here again, Mark. I better go. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes, and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.